I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 3. We'll study verses 27 through 31. Romans Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we establish the law. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures. Your power extended over the lives, the minds, and the hearts of all people through your word. Lord, we pray that you would rule over us and in us this morning. The Lord, even as we hear these well-known verses of scripture... And travel down well-trodden paths. Lord, help us to behold anew the glory of the gift of the gospel of Jesus' blood. Father in heaven, build us up in faith. Help us to trust in him and in him alone. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As we come again to chapter 3 of Romans... To the second half of the chapter, let me remind you that we are in what has been called Paul's great discourse on justification by faith. Let me also remind you that this is preceded by Paul's great discourse on the doctrine of sin. And here we're closing out the chapter. However, we're not closing out Paul on the topic. He's going to continue for some chapters more describing justification by faith in the Christian life. Let me remind you that justification, to put it into simple terms, is our being declared righteous by God. It's reconciliation between God and the sinner. So that not only does he say, no longer guilty, but he declares completely and wonderfully righteous for anybody who believes in Jesus Christ. And so whenever Paul is coming to the end of chapter 3, he's not concluding his discussion on the topic. But rather, here in these verses, verse 27 through 31, he anticipates three problems or questions that his readers may have regarding what he has already taught. And so this morning I want us to take those three together and to consider them. In verse 27, the question is, 
Who gets the glory of our salvation? Who gets the glory of our salvation? Then in verses 28 through 30, the question, does God have a double standard of salvation? Does God have a double standard of salvation? And then in verse 31, the third question, does the gospel abolish the law? Does the gospel abolish the law? You see, whenever Paul writes his letter, when he writes anything, frankly, he's strategic. If Paul had a chessboard, he would have been an expert player because an expert chess player knows his opponent. He studied them, whether it's in the game that they're playing or maybe before the game. You know, it seems to ring true that if you study your opponent, you do better in general. But the Apostle Paul is like a chess player. A good one that anticipates the coming move of his opponent. But the best chess player doesn't only anticipate maybe where the next move will go, but the next thought and the thoughts that follow after that. As if they're playing the game of their opponent for them and then responding instead of reacting. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's anticipating you and he's anticipating me. The condition of my mind, the condition of my heart. The condition of the mind and the heart of the ancient church in Rome. This is a a small church probably. It's a baby church. And it's a diverse church. Can we relate to that this morning at all, CFC? I think we can. It's a church that has people from different backgrounds with different points of view that were raised in different sorts of household that see a distinct difference in culture and in spiritual life. And so Paul is writing and anticipating into that context complaints or problems or questions about this wonderful biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone. And in this first portion, in verse 27, we have the question, then what becomes of our boasting? And Paul answers it, it is excluded. And so we may come to that, especially if you're visiting and you weren't here last week. You may say, where are we? You know, what are we really even talking about? Well, it's all been about that we are not saved by the things we do. By our deeds, by our identity, by our baptism, by our circumcision, by our family name, by our attendance in church, so on and so forth, the religious acts that a person may do, both moral and dictated. Paul has been saying it's that, that those are not things that save us, but rather we're saved by faith alone. We're saved by faith alone. And so Paul comes in verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? What can we boast in? And the question beneath that is very simple. Who gets the glory of our salvation? Because you see, when we boast in a thing, we are saying, look what I have done. Boasting is self-congratulatory. It's us saying to ourselves, yeah, I did really well. Look at the good things that I have done. Look at the good things 
that I have gone through and come out the other side of. I've done well. I'm a good person. So on and so forth. And so whenever Paul is talking about this, he is, he's touching specifically on the question of, well, if you are not justified by the things you have done, then what about all of the boasting? So this morning, I want to kind of pose a question to you. This is commonly used in evangelistic method. And it's the question that might be asked of somebody. And it's this, if you were to meet before God and he were to ask you simply this, why should you be admitted to heaven, what would you say? What might pass your mind? For some people, it might be this phrase, this statement. Well, because of the things that I did, I lived a good life. I was a good neighbor. I didn't barbecue too often whenever the wind was going toward my neighbor's home. I mowed my grass on time. I paid my bills on time. I loved him fairly well. I was a good neighbor, good enough neighbor. I don't break the law at least too often. I keep it to just one speeding fine a year, maybe none. I'm a good person. I never spent time in prison. I hope that's not the low bar of what a good person is. Just never spent time in prison. Maybe it's the person would say, well, I attended church every week. I attended synagogue every week. I kept the law. I did what moral people are supposed to do. I was baptized. I'm a Christian. I'm a Jew. On and on and on. A whole list and a litany that all begin with I, 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 me and my. What did I do? Would you hold forth to God and simply boast and say, Look at what all I've done, and that's why you should let me in there. And Paul says that the good news of justification by faith alone cannot be reconciled with boasting in the deeds of a religious or moral life. It can't be. How is that? Why is that? Why is the gospel antithetical or opposite to boasting about religious matters? How can Paul answer the question, where then is our boasting with this phrase, it is excluded? Well, it is because faith looks to another one that it trusts in. Faith looks outward, it looks to someone else. Specifically, it looks to Jesus. It doesn't list a a whole litany of different qualifications or deeds or works or identity or so on and so forth of what a person has done, but rather it points to the deeds of someone else, to Jesus. Why can't faith boast in works? Because faith reviews its own heart and simply says... I have nothing to boast in. I need everything that my Savior has done. You see, there's a humility to justifying faith. And I would say a sobriety, a soberness to justifying faith. Or we take a little bit of a look in the mirror. We see ourselves in a clear light. I don't know about you, but... 
A little bit of self-confession. If I judge myself according to the word of God, frankly, even if I judge myself just according to my own fallen sense, what are the things that I'm going to be committed about myself? Well, that I'm just a messed up person. That I think things I shouldn't think, that I say things that I shouldn't think, that I love things that I shouldn't love, that I'm weak when I should be strong, that I'm not the person I ought to be, If I give to myself a testimony of all of my failures, what am I going to do? I'm going to continue to walk down the path of the reality of my own fallen depravity. I'm going to hold a court case against me and I'm going to accuse myself. You see, there's a bad thing about that though. Even if I were to accuse myself by my own judgment, what am I going to do? Well, Frankly, I can't bear up even the weight of that and I'm going to give myself excuse after excuse after excuse. Well, you acted that way because that guy cut you off in traffic and he was driving poorly and so, you know, maybe you had good reason to act that way. She said this to you and so it makes sense that you exploded and flew off the rail. You said that because this happened to you that day, that happened to you that day, and another thing and another thing. I give myself excuses and write myself freedom and acquit myself from the sins that I commit, but the word of God does not do that. It holds against my character the standard of the character of God himself. Be holy as your God in heaven is holy. And it's much more realistic. And the testimony of the word of God will inevitably do what it should and does in the life of every person. Brings you low where you find yourself in simply a desperate circumstance with nothing to boast of but rather a desire to hide, conceal the horror of our sins instead of saying, look at all of what I did. The testimony of the word does this so that we inevitably say in desperation, oh Lord God, help me a sinner. Faith says, I, I need someone's help. I can't do it. Not only can I not do it, I never could do it and I'll never be able to do it. I know who I am and I need a redeemer. And so faith looks to someone else. And the Bible says who that other person is. It's the only begotten son of God. It's the one who came for us. And lived under the law. And took the punishment of the law for us. And died in our place. And freely gives us all the benefits. Promised through the law. If we believe in him. You see, saving and justifying faith cannot boast in itself because it's too busy looking at the one that it is praising. Glorious is Jesus. Glorious is the Lamb. The one who fulfilled the law. The one who was obedient. The one who didn't run from punishment. The one who took the cross. The one who took my nails. The one who took my death. The one who laid in my grave. And the one who was raised again. 
There's no boasting in justifying faith. There is only, only praising. So that we might be able to say with 1 Corinthians 131, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We think of the Apostle Paul, you see, he's very concerned with this idea. He's very concerned with this idea that a person, a saved sinner, not boast in their own salvation because of what they've done or the things they've thought. That he repeats it again and again and again. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-29. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. Or where he says it again to the church in Ephesus because he knows, he knows his opponent and he knows their hearts and our hearts. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves it is the gift of God so that no man may boast. Why is he concerned with this? Why is it such an important thing? Because we have to answer the question, who is glorified by our salvation? Who does our salvation put a light upon? It's Christ and it's Christ alone. It's Christ and Christ alone that receives all the glory rather than we ourselves. The second question that the text asks in verses uh, 28 through 30 is, does God have a double standard of salvation? And so look at these verses with me. For we hold that a man, or if you're reading in the ESV, that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised, who will justify the the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? One God, all men, Justified, whether circumcised or uncircumcised, through faith. And here Paul is doing something that is profoundly unpopular in the day in which we live. He makes what we might call a broad generalization. Or, in more technical terms, a categorical statement. One of those far-reaching, all-encompassing statements. Depending on your translation, it may read, Amen. It may, as the ESV, read, One, for we hold that one is justified by faith. But it could be, I think, well translated, Mankind. It's the language for humanity or persons, or that all persons, maybe we want to translate the word that way, for we hold that all persons are justified by faith apart from works of the law. So what is Paul doing? Well, he's answering the Jewish question that might say simply this. 
Now, Paul, we, we've heard your testimony about justification by faith, but that's just for those Gentiles. I mean, the Jews, they have a special and different path. There's another method, another way. I mean, they've got the law, they've got circumcision, they've got the promises of God, they've got the prophets of God. They've had the kings. I mean, these have been God's people forever and ever. They're chosen, Paul. Aren't they accounted as righteous through that means? They kept the law. I mean, you even have the Apostle Paul at times within the New Testament reflecting on his own identity. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised. You got the whole thing. And so it's this answering of a Jewish rejection of the exclusive claim that all persons from all tribes, whether Jews or Gentiles, have one means, one method, one opportunity for salvation, and that is by faith in Jesus alone, not by works. There's not a double standard, Paul would say. But how does he argue this? Well, he doesn't do one thing. He doesn't say there's nothing special about the Jewish people. He doesn't go and then discount the history. He doesn't take to the Jewish people and say, here are the 15,000 different sins that I've observed in your life personally. He doesn't bring up the exiles, the unfaithful kings. He doesn't bring up the idolatry. He doesn't do any of that. Rather, what does he do? He points toward God himself. And he points specifically to the oneness of God. Look at what he says. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? And every Jew would say, no, he's the God of all. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? The Jews would say, yes, of course, of the Gentiles also. And Paul says in verse 30, well, since I've got you there, since God is one, let me tell you this. He will justify the circumcised by faith and also the uncircumcised through faith. Faith is the alone instrument of justification. Whether you're a Jew, having been raised in the household of faith, or whether you're a pagan, wayward Gentile, raised in a household of ignorance and profound unrighteousness, without the sign of the covenant or any benefit that the Jewish people have had. There is one way that a man may be made right with God, and that's through the blood of Jesus. That's the testimony. That's it. And through your reception of him by faith. You don't need anything else. Frankly, you and I are not sufficient for anything else. Because again, Paul is like a chess player, and he knows his opponent, and he knows our character. Just as the Bible knows our character. That we are a sinful people. And that even if we were to keep the law in its letter, we would fail to keep it in its spirit. Even if we kept it in deed, we would transgress it in thought. And so on and so forth. There's no double standard. There is only one way to come to the Father, and that is through faith in the Son. And every person ought to say amen. Praise be to God. There's not a new list of rules, but rather one that kept the rules for me that I'm invited to trust in. In verse 31, we have the third question. 
Admittedly, Paul asks the question, answers the question, and moves on very quickly. But this is a huge question, frankly. Does God abolish the law? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith, the apostle asks in verse 31. And then he answers in very strong words. By no means. And you see, it's as if he knows that the Jewish readers of this early, goth, or this, uh, early letter, they're going to read this and they're going to say, then, what about it, Paul? Is this gospel of faith taking the word of God, who you claim to worship, and just throwing it out the window? Are you denying the moral law, the Ten Commandments? Are you denying the teaching of Scripture? Are you, Paul? Are you? That's blasphemy, they might say against Paul. How could you throw out the law? Paul is very careful. Do we abolish the law? Do we overthrow it? By no means. On the contrary. In fact, whenever the Lord Jesus encountered the very same sort of question by people who heard his teaching in Matthew 5, verse 17, he answered it in a similar fashion. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Well, what does the Lord Jesus Christ, what does the Apostle Paul mean by that if they've already said that works of the law cannot justify or save? What does he mean? What does he mean by that it fulfills? What does he mean by uh, we uphold or we establish the law in verse 31? How do we get our head around it? Well, it's like this. Jesus and Paul are committed to the truth that the law is good and that it shows us that man is sinful. That the law is good and that it shows us that man cannot keep the law because of his sinful heart. That the law is good and that the law punishes law-breaking. That the law is good and that because we've broken the law, we deserve punishment. That the law is good and we deserve punishment and we need a redeemer, a savior. That the law is good and that Jesus came to fulfill the law for us as he lived under the law and under temptation. That the law is good and that Jesus came to bear our punishment under the law. That the law is good and that Jesus kept the law for us. That the law is good and that Jesus gives to us all of the benefits of the law through his death in our place and his resurrection. You see what Paul is saying in a very, very quick turn of phrase is this. That Jesus obeyed the law. It structured his whole life. All of his righteousness was the pursuit of the heart of God in the law. He kept it. Jesus, when he died on the cross, died because the law established his death because of us. And it also tells us this. That the benefit that we receive from him 
is according to the promise of the law. How do we have everlasting life? Because Jesus fulfilled the law for us. So why can Paul say something like it establishes it? Because if not for Jesus, if not for him, the law would only have one thing to say to us. Guilty. Condemned. Damned. Deserving of death. Cast out. But in Christ Jesus, and through his obedience, if we believe in him, we're called son. We're called daughter. We're called child of God, beloved, redeemed bride. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Praise be to God that he gave to us a lawkeeper to die in our place, the lawbreakers. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you gave us your son. That, Lord, though your word and your law demand perfect obedience, you required it of your Son for us. Oh, Lord, and you account to us all of his obedience if we believe in him. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. Lord, that they wouldn't just simply be old truths but that, Lord, they would be our steadfast security. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.